What does a strong and successful gospel ministry look like? It should be impressive, right? Uh, pastors seem to think so. I mean, at conferences, all the chat is about what's going well. You know, numbers, buildings, new ministries and the like. Uh, struggles, weaknesses, self-doubt, infighting, decline, disappointments aren't really mentioned that much. And I think in pastors, there's a worry about showing weakness because, you know, we've fallen into the mindset that ministry is supposed to look strong. Now, church members can easily fall into the same mindset, I guess. The main reason for that, I suppose, is a, what you might call a syncretistic understanding of what pastoral ministry is. And what I mean by that is that it's, well, mostly biblical, but maybe overlaid, dressed up and combined with worldly values and expectations that aren't really in the Bible for the pastoral job description. For example, we want someone to preach the word, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to set forth the truth plainly. But we want them to do it with impeccable rhetoric and TED Talk-like communication and length. But we don't even need to go outside the evangelical world, I guess, to fall into the trap of thinking that genuine ministry will look successful and impressive. All we need to do is watch any of the amazing preachers available to us online these days and compare our own pastors to them. You know, even that quiet wish that our pastors could preach like Piper, Dever, Carson or someone like them can make us listen to our own pastors with a wee sense of disappointment and view their ministries as well. All right, but weaker than others. But what does God's word say to us about that? Actually, it says an awful lot, and especially in the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a book that encourages us to know what authentic gospel ministry looks like and not be put off when we see that it seems weak and unimpressive. You know, it encourages us to boast in Christ whose power is made perfect in weakness, in the weak ministry of your pastors and in the weak ministry that you yourself do. Now, let me introduce uh, 2 Corinthians quickly, I guess by means of a Netflix style recap, because Starting in 2 Corinthians, I guess, is like starting The Crown in season three. There's a backstory. There's history to it. And what we know from God's words already is that the Corinthian church was planted by the Apostle Paul in around 50 AD. You read about that in the book of Acts, chapter 18. And he pastored them for around 18 months. As you follow the timeline, you'll see that he kept on, he left to carry on planting churches um, but he kept in touch with the church. He sent a letter to them uh, that we don't have. It's lost. You can read about that, though, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. He received a letter back, evidently. We don't have that either. But his second letter to them, which is our 1 Corinthians, was his reply. Uh, his ministry trainees, Timothy, uh, uh, delivered the letter but didn't find the church in a healthy state when he did. It looked like a pie chart, the church, you know, splitting into fighting factions. And many of the members had fallen for false teaching by these TED-talking Jewishy braggers who cast doubt on Paul's weak and inauthentic ministry, compared to theirs, at least. You know, oh, if he's so successful, why does he suffer so much? Have you seen his back? Oh, it's grotesque. 
Well, if he's so certain of God's will, why does he keep changing his plans? And uh, if he's really an apostle, why does he not have a letter of recommendation from the other apostles? And then there was the church member who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. There was an awful lot that was going wrong in Corinth just a short time after Paul had planted and discipled the church. Now, all of that led Paul to make a second visit to Corinth sooner than he had planned. He pretty much left Ephesus and probably jumped on a boat and took the quickest route across the sea to go and see them. And in 2 Corinthians 1, we realise that he calls it a painful visit. So painful that after he left, he cancelled a third visit that he was planning to make to them and wrote a third letter instead, what's called the tearful letter. Uh, we don't have that one either. It's also lost. It was a, a letter, though, of great emotion. We know that because he says, For I wrote to you, says Paul, out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. We see that in 2 Corinthians 2, 4. Now, Paul called for the church's repentance for all the things I said before. And Titus, who checked in on them, reported their repentance to Paul when they finally caught up. And the majority of the church family were sorry and regathered under the true gospel taught by Paul. And in response, he writes this letter, or his fourth letter, if you like, but our second Corinthians. And his aim is simple. It's to encourage the majority who've made a good start at getting their relationship with Paul back on track to keep going in that. And it's also to exhort the unrepentant minority to follow suit. The response of both depends on their understanding of who Paul is and whose church it is. That's why Paul starts the letter the way he does. And let me show you, uh, even in this uh, diagram, essentially, we'll build on this in a couple of weeks. We've got three parties in view here, God, Paul and the church. And in verse one, Paul says two things. He says, I am God's apostle. I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, he says. Uh, so he's trying to say to us, look, he, he, he's the authentic gospel minister. Yeah, he looks weak, but that's just the way God likes them. So that everyone can see that the power to save and the power to sanctify comes, well, from him. And Paul's wording is very careful here as he kicks this off. He puts Christ before the name Jesus, the title before the name. And that's to underline Christ's sovereignty. And I guess it's to subtly raise the question, in line one, will they listen to the one sent by King Jesus? Because to challenge Paul is to challenge not only the apostle God sends, but even, even to challenge the authority of King Jesus. So he says, look, I'm God's apostle. And actually he says, you're God's church to the church of God in Corinth, he says. Now, they're certainly not Paul's church. They're certainly not the church of the Ted talking Jewish braggers. That's probably going to stick. No, they are God's church and God rules his church through the word of his apostles and prophets. And again, the question is, will they hear? Will they obey? Will they receive Paul and repent? Indeed, will we? Have we yet grasped that God rules his church through the word of the apostles and prophets 
and calls on us to submit to it. Well, that's how it opens. But one more thing before we dive in. Don't think that this book, as it talks about ministry, don't think it's just for pastors. It certainly does shape those who are set apart for pastoral ministry. But at key points in the letter, Paul widens the application to all. He uses the word we at times to show us what's true of every believer. After all, in Christ, we're all gospel ministers doing ministry. But I'm pretty sure that many of us have a strong sense of our weaknesses when it comes to doing it. And we're all self-convinced that weakness is a hindrance to us doing it. Second Corinthians will say to us again and again, think again. Yeah, we're all jars of clay, we're weak and we are fragile, but we're vessels of gospel gold called to share it, not in our strength, but in God's, in order to show that this all-surpassing power to do it and the all-surpassing power to achieve what it achieves comes from him, as 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says. So join me in praying then that as we study this book, we'll go in strength, our own great weakness feeling, to do the ministry that God has called us as a church family to do. Well, weakness is where we're going to start, because that's where this book starts. So let's dive in, and I've got a couple of points. Here's the first main thing that I want us to see. That God comforts us. We see this in verses 3 and 4a. Look with me at it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Well, Paul starts by praising God for who he is the God of all comfort. Verse 3 that says that's what he is. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Perfectly revealed to us through the Son who is, as Hebrews 1 says, the image of the invisible God. And he is a Father who is gloriously shared with us through the sacrifice of the Son on the cross. He's our Father because Jesus is our Lord. Just as Jesus himself said in John 16, 27, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. That's stunning. Then in verse 3b, you see that he's described as the Father of compassion or the Father of mercy. Both words are uh, a good translation. Now, what that tells us is that compassion and mercy are in his nature. There's an echo here of Exodus 34, 6, where God passes in front of Moses, uh, declaring himself the Lord, the Lord, uh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Well, compassion, mercy, it's in his nature, essentially because he invented it. Uh, we, you think of the way that we use the father, uh, the word father in our English language at times. You know, Louis Pasteur is the father of immunology. Um, Hippocrates is the father of modern medicine. God, the father of, the source of, the originator of mercy and compassion. That's good news for us, friends, to sinners and to the Corinthians and to us. But he's not only the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of compassion, he is the God of all comfort, as the third part of verse 3 says. Now, we have an interpretation problem here. 
with the word comfort. I mean, what do you think of when you hear the word comfort? Uh, you might be thinking of a sofa that you sink into, uh, slippers that you slip your feet into, a duvet that you wrap around yourself. Maybe when you think of comfort, you think of comfort foods, uh, certain foods that we like to enjoy. Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe even think of fabric softener. But that's not the kind of comfort that Paul means. Uh, David Garland in his commentary says, the comfort that Paul has in mind has nothing to do with a lazy feeling of contentment. It's not some tranquilizing dose of grace that only dulls pain, uh, but a, a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart and mind and soul. You know, comfort relates to encouragement, help, exhortation. God's com comfort strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits so that one faces the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance. That's the kind of comfort that we have in mind here. That's what God means. That's who God is. One who is happily and lovingly strengthening those who are weak. Now, even as we pause there, given who God is, how should we respond? Well, at the revelation of these things, we should praise him. Just That's what Paul calls us to do at the start of verse 3. Praise him. Praise be. Blessed is this God. He's our Father, as he is the Son's. He is merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He's a comforter. We should praise him for that. Now, that is a comfort, of course, to those who love the Lord Jesus and who call him Lord and Saviour. It's not a comfort to anyone who has not done that. No, he is, he remains a fearful judge for the person who has not found their hope, their comfort and their consolation and their mercy in Jesus Christ. Listen, friend, if you're here, uh, you're watching and you're not a Christian, this text, even in these opening couple of verses, encourages you to see God for who he is, compassionate and merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And he is the one who moves toward, towards us, keen to give us this forgiveness. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can be assured of his comfort without repenting of your sin and turning to Christ. You have no assurance of such comfort. So turn to him and believe the gospel for yourself. Well, we praise him as believers, not only for who God is, but as we see Paul, praise God for what he does. So do we. What does God do? Verse four, he comforts us in all our troubles. Now troubles, in a sense, sounds like a catch-all word that could include any kind of distress or suffering. And while it is true that God comforts us in everyday struggles, whether that's uh, bereavement or anxiety or the like, a careful reading of this passage and in the context of this book suggests that it's actually faith-related trouble that Paul has in mind, specifically suffering in Christian work or Christian ministry for being a believer. In this passage alone, this suffering in verse 5 is tied to Christ and his sufferings, to the things that Paul does also in verse 6, which is for their salvation. So 
Paul's point is that God comforts and God strengthens, specifically in relation to Christian work, to being and doing all the, being who God has called us to be and doing the things it called us to do, to be speakers and re-speakers of God's word, proclaimers of it. Now, Paul is speaking here from experience and does so obviously throughout 2 Corinthians but three passages in particular throughout the book spell out the troubles and afflictions that he's experienced in ministry. And when you trace through them, it really is astonishing that he endured past even one of them. But his testimony here is that God comforted him and that that's the key to endurance and faithfulness in ministry. It's knowing God to be the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. That's what keeps people like us going. Now let me read a section and insert the reason for his endurance that we find stated in verse 4 by saying, but he comforted me. This is 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 29. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, but he comforted me. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked in the open sea, but he comforted me. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. But he comforted me. I've laboured and toiled and I've often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked, but he comforted me. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? But he comforted me. Do you see how those sufferings are all wrapped up in the things of ministry? Things are happening to him because he is doing this ministry. He is feeling the ache of certain things in relation to the churches because he's so heart-rendingly in the ministry, loving people, caring for souls as a Christian minister ought to. Well, endurance in faithful ministry and the ability to keep on speaking despite knowing our weaknesses is only found in the God of all comfort who loves to comfort us in our troubles. Not with a, uh, there, there, you know, hug it out, everything will be okay, shh. No, not with a, no, uh, no, no, this will never happen to you ever again. I, I will make sure of it. No, the comfort that Paul had from Christ was that through these troubles, Christ brought salvation to people, to unbelievers, all over the place. And Christ brought his sanctifying work in the lives, to bear in the lives of the churches that he and Paul himself held in his heart. It's absolutely beautiful. It's gospel ministry at its best. Now, I, I think that's enough for us to think over 
in this talk. And before I close though, I do want to ask, how does this apply specifically to us here in Charlotte Chapel? Well, I think there are three applications. The primary application in this passage is clearly to praise God. For who he is, God of all comfort, for what he does comforts us in our troubles. Primarily, of course, as I've just said, in relation to our gospel work, but secondarily in other sufferings too. We should praise him, right? Any insight into the character of God that scripture gives, God, the most glorious being in all existence, should make us fall on our knees and lift our voices. So let me encourage you, practically, whether it's after the service is finished or sometime early in the week, to get your Bible open to 2 Corinthians 1 and take these four verses, open, have them open in your lap, and turn this text into a prayer of praise. That's the first thing. Praise the God of all comfort. Secondary application to this is to realise that gospel ministry is hard. Okay, It is hard. Uh, it's hard for your pastors. It's hard for church leaders. Uh, it's hard for those in the pastoral team. Pray for us. Uh, it's hard to do this work, to prepare to preach each week. Especially when you're plagued with a sense of your own inadequacy, disappointed by your own ungodly behaviour in the week leading up to it. Uh, Christian ministry is hard when... You, the person that you have lovingly discipled, invested yourself in, doesn't return your calls or bails in the faith. It's hard when you're cut down unfairly and indecently in email, in matters that are, I guess, so confidential that you can't even defend yourself. It's hard when a small group of folks gather together against you and speak ill of you unfairly. It's hard when you feel such a love and a burden for the people that are entrusted to your care but you can't gather with them and you're worried about them. It's, it's hard when your heart is wrapped up with people like that. So pray for us that we would know, not just in our heads, but in faith, that God is our comfort in the hard things of ministry. The tertiary application is to realise that your own gospel ministry will also be hard. Expect it. You know, but expect to receive the comfort of God that helps you endure and keep doing it. So if you've poured your life into praying for someone, maybe a child of yours, and they refuse to repent, be comforted. Keep praying. If someone in church no longer talks to you because once upon a time you lovingly confronted them about sin in their life, be comforted. Keep trying. If you lead a ministry and the encouragement folder in your email is empty, be comforted. Keep serving. If you have a dear brother or sister in Christ who suffers and you suffer with them, though it's hard because it reminds you of your own suffering in the past, be comforted. Keep caring. Or if your family keeps you out of the loop because they don't like the fact that you're a Christian, be comforted. Keep loving. And remember that we're all weak 
we're all unimpressive, just like your pastors, just like the elders, we're all like this. Keep going. God's grace is sufficient for us. His power made perfect in weakness.